I have spent much of my life living in Southern California, and as a result, I am a veteran of numerous earthquakes. <laughs> That's actually a title I'd rather not wear. <laughs> One of the worst earthquakes I ever experienced uh, was in the late 1980s, but it was before I entered the ministry when I was still working in industry, and it was a 6.0 quake, and it was particularly intense because the company where I worked was located just three miles from the epicenter. So on that particular day, I arrived for work, and as I usually did, first thing I did is I went to the company cafeteria, got myself a cup of coffee. On Sunday mornings, it's water, but on office days, it's coffee. <laughs> got myself a cup of coffee, went and sat down at my desk and began to work, and then the earthquake hit. My office was probably... 50, 60 feet away from the main work area where the majority of the employees worked in what we used to call a cubicle farm. <laughs> and that office space had massive floor-to-ceiling plate glass windows. And all the way over in my office, I could hear them shattering like rifle shots. That area had a huge high vaulted ceiling and because of the shaking, the ceiling tiles were breaking loose. Some of the light fixtures came loose and they were falling down and I could hear people screaming as they were diving under their desks to get away from the falling stuff. We were a distribution company. We had a massive warehouse full of industrial products that we shipped to customers. That huge machinery was stored on pallet racks that were 20, 25, 30 feet high. And some of that equipment walked its way to the edge of the shelf and started falling on the staff that was fleeing in their forklifts, trying to get away from that. Thankfully, nobody was hurt by any of that debris. Well, as part of the management team, it was my job in an emergency to help get the place evacuated. I grabbed a colleague and we started to run through the office and the warehouse, making sure that people were safe and out of the building. And as we did that, not only were people screaming and leaving the building, but we were going deeper into the building and there were continual aftershocks. <laughs> we eventually figured out everybody seems to be out of the building. We rallied the employees in the parking lot, took roll, and thankfully verified. Hmm. Isn't it amazing? That happened all those years ago. I can still feel the emotion of that moment. When we counted and 300 people were safe. And we were full of joy. That was a scary, scary experience. But you know what, when I finally realized everybody's safe, this moment's over, I went over and sat down under a tree there outside the building, and I thought, okay, Bruce, that was pretty scary, pretty crazy, but you didn't lose it, you didn't panic, you did what you had to do. I was proud of the fact that I'd been able to keep my composure and help evacuate the building. And then I looked down and I realized that that coffee cup that I picked up a little while before was in a white knuckle grip in my hand. <laughs> I hadn't sat down, I hadn't dropped it. It was like, I was squeezing the life out of it. And I realized, you know, maybe I'm not so calm as I thought I was. <laughs> but here's the most interesting thing. Like many corporations, ours had a chain of command. 
upper management, other levels of management, office workers, laborers in the warehouse, higher ups in the organization made decisions and issued orders and made demands and people lower down the totem pole were expected to, to comply and to show deference to the higher ups and everyone in that organization regardless of their status was focused on earning a buck and climbing the organizational ladder striving to be successful and why is it that people do that it's because those are the marks of a corporate culture you want to work your way up the ladder and yet when the ground began to shake none of that mattered People helped each other out of the building without regard to anybody's position. And once we were outside the building, people standing there in the parking lot, people were crying with relief and hugging each other without any regard to anyone's organizational status. Nobody cared. They were just grateful everybody was alive. And over the next week, as we cleaned up the mess together and put our distribution center back together, there was a different feeling. There was, there was a sense of equality and a unity of purpose that we'd never had before. So why did that happen? It's because when the earthquake hit, we came face to face with our own mortality. We thought this is it this is the big one we might die and in times like that worldly values and worldly accomplishments just don't seem very important the marks of this world don't mean much when we stand on the brink of eternity an awareness that this life may end and the next life may be about to begin, <laughs> changes our perspective. Now, unfortunately, that special feeling in the company didn't last. And that's because the marks of our culture are so deeply embedded in most people. Over the long haul, we tend to stick to the values that are most deeply ingrained in our minds and hearts and habits. And this results in an obvious tension for those of us who choose to be followers of Jesus. We have to be intentional about what we let mark us so we don't buy into values that pull us away from our Lord. And one way to do that is to remember that this world is temporary. And all of the things we value, all of the earthly marks of success are going to pass away. And instead of adopting that value system, we can follow the advice of the Apostle John who points us toward a different set of values. In the passage that we are about to explore, John tells us that a community of faith does not embrace worldly cultural perspectives. A community of faith embraces an eternal perspective. And when our lives yours and mine, are marked by an eternal perspective, then we are far less tempted to pursue the marks of our culture, and we can keep our lives in healthy balance. 
This morning, the Apostle John is going to show us an approach to help us do just that. So let's begin in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, where John encourages us to pursue eternal things. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away with its desires, but whoever does the will of God, that's what we should embrace. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, this is an interesting passage because we know from the book of Genesis that God created everything in the world, and he proclaimed it all to be good. And John here is saying, well, there's some things in the world that are bad, but John isn't contradicting God. He's not telling us that everything in the world is inherently bad. He wants us simply to be careful about embracing the values that sinful mankind has brought into God's world. And these are attitudes and actions we embrace which spoil the beauty of all that God has created, including the beauty of living as a human being made in God's image. And far too often, we human beings embrace the wrong things. And to make his point, John highlights three categories of personal behavior, three marks of the world that damage the image of God within each of us. So first he lists the desires of the flesh. And this is a reference to the unbridled pursuit of pleasure or position or power or possessions. And if we're honest, we have to acknowledge that most Americans are driven by one or more of those things, which means you and I are surrounded by that temptation. And we need to be discerning because it's not good for us as followers of Jesus to embrace the desires of the flesh. John next mentions the desires of the eyes. Now, some Bible translations actually call this the lust of the eyes, And and we then might think that John is referring to inappropriate sexual desire. Now, it's never good to look at another human being with lust. Jesus made that clear. But that's not what John's talking about. He's describing our tendency to compare ourselves to others and to desire what they have. I'm content with my car until you buy a new one and then I want a new car. I have a good job, I'm comfortable with my position, I'm making a good buck, and then you get a raise in promotion and I want one too. (laughs) President Theodore Roosevelt once said, comparison is the thief of joy. Comparison is the thief of joy. And oh, he was right. The desire of our eyes leads us to compare ourselves with others. The stereotypical phrase is we were about keeping up with the Joneses, right? We see what the neighbors have, we want what they have, we want to keep up with them. And when we allow our lives to be marked by that desire, the desire of the eyes, then we wind up filling ourselves with discontent. Instead of the joy that comes from just being content with God. 
the joy that God wants to flood our souls. And the sad reality is this. The desire of the eyes has been a weakness of humanity since the very beginning of time. In the book of Genesis chapter 3, we read that Eve decided to eat the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden. Why? Because it was pleasing to the eye. Her attitude was, hey, it looks good. So I want it. Despite the fact that God says it's bad for me. Eve, of course, wasn't alone. Adam saw what she did. And when she invited him to participate, he didn't want to be left out. He wanted to keep up with the Joneses, as we say. <laughs> so he joined her. Each of them, in their own way, yielded to the desires of the eyes. Because something looked good. They pursued a momentary pleasure and paid a perpetual price. Every day in this broken world in which we live, you and I face similar temptations. And the question is this, will we indulge our wants based on what appeals to our eyes or are we going to listen and embrace the wisdom of God? And it's so much easier to make the right choices when we realize there's something bigger than living in the moment, when we embrace an eternal perspective and we realize that these momentary pleasures will not last. God always has something bigger in store for us. The third issue John mentions is the pride of life. Instead of living with an attitude of grateful humility for what we have, and instead of being thankful for what God enables us to accomplish, we instead boast about what we have and what we do. People who yield to the pride of life are marked by a default toward an egotistical focus on our credentials, our accomplishments, and our acquisitions. And John mentions these three categories because they're so broad-based, they seem to cover almost all human failings. And the problem with these three areas of life are they are self-centered rather than God-centered. They are marks of the world, not marks of the kingdom of God. And they're harmful to us as individuals and they're harmful to our community of faith. And that's why we must reject investing ourselves in these temporary things. and Instead, we need to embrace eternal things. Whenever I read this passage, I'm reminded of a book written by Professor Tony Campolo a number of years ago. It was a book called Who Switched the Price Tags? Tony challenges us to rethink the value we place on temporary things versus eternal things. So he says, imagine that God had a price labeling machine and he put a prominent spiritual price tag on everything in this world. So my car, your car, our houses, our clothes, our jobs, each of those would have a spiritual price tag that says temporary. Or it might even say, this will burn on the day of judgment. But every human soul 
would have a spiritual price tag that says lasts forever. You see, it's so much better to invest in people than in things. To invest in our own soul and the development of our relationship with God and to invest in other people in such a way that we can make an eternal difference in their lives. Now, now having said all that, we always need to keep these things in context. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the simple pleasures of this world. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the fruits of our labor. But the issue is this, what's our priority? What is it we're embracing? When God blesses us with things, do we grip them tightly? Or do we hold them with a loose hand? Do we cling to our stuff as if that's what brings meaning and value to life? John wants us to understand here that the only things that give ultimate meaning to your life and mine are the things that will last for eternity. And ultimately, it's about my soul and your soul. It's about the choices we make that affect our relationship with God and with others. And you see, we need to keep the spiritual price tags in mind because someday we're all going to stand before God to give an account of our lives. And on that day, people who have been striving to win the world's approval based on the world's values, oh, they will be filled with dismay when they realize everything they have embraced is eternally useless. They will be devastated to learn that they've missed the boat. They bet on the wrong horse. It all was in vain because the marks of the world will not last. However, people marked by an eternal perspective keep their priorities straight. People who embrace an eternal perspective will not be disappointed when they stand before God because during this life, they choose above all things to invest in the things that last. The development of their own soul and to invest in other human beings made in the image of God. That's what lasts. That's why God gives us a next life. Eternity awaits. And we invest now toward that day. And so John invites us in this life to embrace eternal things and to step away from the marks of this world. And he says, here's how you do it. You, you embrace eternal things by embracing God's eternal truth. And that's what he begins to talk about next as we pick up the passage in verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They, that's the Antichrist, went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. 
This is key. Listen carefully. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. That's where the trajectory of life always heads, is toward eternity. Now, now John makes an interesting comment at the beginning of this section. You probably noticed that. He says it's the last hour. But how can it be the last hour all the way back in the first century? I mean, 2,000 later, we're still here. Things haven't ended yet. The answer becomes clear when we recognize that God views time very differently than we do. So when the biblical authors write about last hours and last days, they are not referring to the immediate end of human history. They're talking about the final season of human history. And we live in that extremely lengthy final season. It's a season that began with the death of burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's a season that was announced on the day of Pentecost when God poured out his spirit on the world. And this season will end sometime in the future when Jesus returns to establish his eternal kingdom. And as we get closer and closer to the end, at some point, the Bible tells us there will be a person, an individual, known as the Antichrist who shows up and tries to lead people away from God. What John wants us to see here, though, is that even before we reach that ultimate endpoint, there are other people in the world who are antichrists. And he tells us what to look for so we can spot an antichrist who may show up. So, who is an antichrist? John says it's a person who has at some point been part of the church. It says they were of us, and then they went out from us. So they were part of the church, then they left and began promoting unchristian beliefs. And they, they try and undermine the very core of the Christian message. So when Antichrist teaches that Jesus did not come to earth in human form, he is not God in the flesh, he did not die a physical death on the cross, he did not rise from the grave. And Antichrist has rejected Jesus and teaches that Jesus is not the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God. Here's another way to understand that. Antichrists are not sticky Christians because they fail to stick to God and they fail to stick to God's people. And in contrast, John says, A true believer never walks away. A true believer sticks to God's truth. We stick to each other so we can help each other live out God's truth. And John writes this so we will understand that we are in a spiritual battle with eternity at stake. Jesus purchased our salvation through his death on the cross so that we can experience new life now and with him forever, and Satan is fighting back. 
as a result, John says, antichrists appeared in his day in the first century. And they seem to crop up regularly throughout the generations. Because on a regular basis, sadly, there are people who come into the church and who proclaim to identify with Christ and then they walk away and begin speaking against Christ. And the way to stand is to embrace the eternal truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah of God. Putting our trust in Jesus, the Christ, is the only way to be forgiven and live in peace with God. Jesus is at the center. And it's really interesting. I find that when I talk with people about spiritual matters and the conversation gets around to God, many people are very comfortable talking about God. And maybe you've experienced this too. It's all good talking about God. And then you start mentioning Jesus and suddenly they get real nervous. They get uncomfortable when Jesus comes into the picture. Well, why would that be? Because it's easy to talk about God in kind of a nebulous way. When you talk about Jesus, you're talking about the Christ, the Son of God, and he stands at the center of spiritual truth. And, and I've actually had people say to me, you know, you and I may have different ideas about Jesus, but, but we really do believe in the same God. John says something very different here. If we don't agree on Jesus, then we don't agree on God. And that's the truth to which you and I must firmly hold because eternity hangs in the balance. And if we proclaim God while denying Jesus, then we are not sticking to God's eternal truth and we will not be able to receive God's promised gift of eternal life. And there are many people within the Christian community, and I'm not calling them antichrists, but I'm saying they're not embracing this pivotal truth. And it can be tempting to believe what they teach and it undermines our faith. There's a Christian theologian named Miroslav Volf. Well-respected, well-regarded. I've read some things that he said, and he is my brother in Christ. But a few years ago, he, he, he authored a book called Allah, A Christian Response. And the premise of that book is that Christians and Muslims worship the same God, even though we have completely different views of salvation and completely different views about the person of Jesus Christ. And like I said, I deeply respect Wolf. But I think in that book, he makes a profound error based on what the Apostle Paul writes here in verses 22 and 23. Who is the liar but he who denies Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And so it's really very simple. We do not worship the same God as Muslims. Because Muslims do not acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. We don't worship God in the same way as Jews because faithful Jews, who I love to call our older brothers and sisters in the faith, they deny Jesus Christ as the Son of God. That's the truth. And you and I must hold firmly to that truth even when prominent people within the Christian community try to tell us differently. Now, does this mean we're supposed to hate Muslims, hate Jews, 
Hey, other groups that deny Jesus. No. We love them. We befriend them. We try, try to model to them the light and the love of Jesus Christ and lead them re- into relationship with Jesus. We should do that with any person or any group that does not understand that God sent his son into the world to save the world. Whoever confesses the son has the father. And that's the truth which leads to eternal life. That's the truth that should mark us. That's the truth to which we, as the church, need to stick. And to help us do that, God has given us the blessing of his spirit, which John refers to here as an anointing, an anointing from the Holy One. He's talking about being spirit-filled people. And he mentions it here in verse 20, and he mentions it again in the final section of the passage that we're going to look at in just a moment. You see, the anointing of the Spirit, having the power of the Holy Spirit within us, that's what enables us in the push and pull and stresses and challenges of daily life. That's what enables us to live with an eternal perspective. We live with an eternal perspective by embracing the eternal Christ. Jesus, our Lord. Jesus, our Savior. Jesus, our Messiah. Look with me at the last couple of verses of this passage. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Abide in Jesus now and forever. Now that that word anoint is not a word we typically use much outside the church. It's not a typical word of conversation, but it simply means to apply. So God anoints us by applying the Holy Spirit to our lives. And we need to understand that as a very distinct mark of living in this final season of human history. And that's because before Jesus arrived on the scene, humanity lived under the old covenant. And during that time, the anointing of the Holy Spirit was extremely limited. God gave his spirit for special circumstances. God anointed people with his spirit, uh, special people with his spirit, like maybe a prophet or a special king. Not everyone had the Spirit. But now, because of Jesus, we live under the new covenant. And as part of this new covenant, the anointing of the Holy Spirit is given to every person who is a follower of Christ. And we saw this very clearly in our recent series of messages about the day of Pentecost and the arrival of the Spirit in the world. And it's no accident that John writes about the anointing of the Spirit here in this letter because in his earlier work his biography of Jesus called the book of John he gives a very detailed explanation of the role and ministry and purpose of the Spirit we talked about some of that in our Pentecost messages but just to quickly summarize in chapters 14 and 16 of the book of John we learn that the Holy Spirit is a spirit of truth We learn that the Holy Spirit wants to educate the conscience of human beings so that we become aware of our sin and then we turn to Jesus in order to be forgiven. 
The Spirit wants to remind us of what Jesus said and lead us in the way of God's truth so we won't be deceived. That's why here in this letter, John says, the anointing teaches us all things. You and I, because of the Holy Spirit, we have the ability to sit down and open the Bible, this incredibly spiritual book, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can discern it, we can understand it, we can let God take this truth and apply it to our lives so that we can continue to walk faithfully with Jesus. Because that's the blessing of being anointed by the Spirit. And here's what's really awesome. God's Spirit lives in me, and God's Spirit lives in you if you're a follower of Jesus, which means we're all anointed, which means we can help each other know the truth. And we do that here on Sunday morning through sermons. We do it midweek through our growth groups. In all kinds of ways, we help each other know and embrace God's eternal truth so that we can abide in Christ. I love that word abide. Again, it's kind of an old-fashioned word. But it means we stick to Jesus. We embrace the eternal Christ. And we resolve through the power of the Spirit who lives within us to never let Him go. And when we stick to Christ and embrace an eternal perspective, it can and it will make a huge difference in how we respond to the challenges of life. I don't know what you like to read, but I love to read a lot of history. And a while back, I ran across a detailed account of the 1300s when the plague swept across Europe. I have to tell you, I found myself in tears more than once as I read about people who were affected by that deadly epidemic. It it truly was terrifying. Symptoms seemed to appear out of nowhere, And once you started showing the systems, you usually were dead within five days. Five days from onset of symptoms to gone. The medical community of that time was fairly primitive. They had no idea what caused the plague and there was no known cure. And entire families were wiped out. Entire communities were wiped out. It's understandable why people called it the Black Death. And it took the lives of an estimated 25 million people. It was way worse than COVID. Way worse. I try to imagine myself in that setting and I think, holy smokes, talk about fear and anxiety. How do you fight back against an epidemic that you don't understand and can't control? Well, we obviously didn't understand COVID at first, but we live in a scientific age, and it wasn't long before we started to figure some things out. And and unfortunately, we didn't always make the best decisions, but at least we had some knowledge to shape our responses. But in the 1300s, people didn't have that. They were clueless. And in light of the Black Death, here's what people decided to do. This was their remedy. Leave early, go far, stay long. (laughs) In other words, the minute somebody in your village shows the symptoms, you split. You abandon your work, your home, your neighbors, and you just flee. And you go as far away as you can, and you live in isolation, and you don't return home for a very long time. 
Not everyone ran away, of course, but many did out of an understandable fear for their lives. But here's where it gets interesting. In, in that era, there were hospitals, primitive, but hospitals nonetheless. And most of the hospitals in Western Europe were founded by and staffed by Christians. Believers became doctors and nurses because they wanted to show God's compassion and care for the sick. And then the plague comes along. <laughs> what do you do when it's your responsibility to treat the sick, yet you know you can't cure them, and you know that your patients might infect you, and then you might die along with them? Well, there were some doctors and nurses who fled because they did fear for their lives. But here's what impresses me. Most of those people stayed. And they stayed because they refused to abandon their friends and their neighbors. They stayed because they refused to abandon their calling as healers of the sick, even though they couldn't heal the sick. And they stayed so they could physically comfort the dying as best they could. Their goal was to love God with all of their heart and soul and mind and strength and to love their neighbor as they love themselves until they drew their last breath. And so the medical staff in these primitive hospitals would bathe the sick, give out their primitive care, and pray with them. And make sure that they didn't die alone. Because they stayed, many of those Christian caregivers wound up dying themselves. So, so how could they do that? They could do it because they embraced an eternal perspective. And as a result, they didn't fear death. They were confident in their hope of the life to come. And in a situation where so many were understandably filled with fear, often it was the Christians who chose to deliberately stay who were able to live in peace. In the midst of a culture of death, they were the ones who weren't anxious or worried because they said, our lives are in the hands of an eternal God. And whenever he takes us home, we'll be with him forever. Wow. Now, the plague obviously is an extreme situation. The world's never seen anything quite like it. But I think it's a vivid example of how to live out precisely what John is talking about in this passage. To be followers of Jesus who choose to embrace eternal things to embrace God's eternal truth and to embrace the eternal Christ. And when we do that, when our lives are marked by that kind of eternal perspective, then we can live without fear. And we can stick to Jesus until he takes us home to be with him forever. Because that's his promise eternal life. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the eternal hope that we have in Jesus. And Father, I, I, I ask that you would forgive us 
that we can so easily get caught up in the values and the practices of this world. And help us to remember each day to make decisions based on the spiritual price tags. To invest in things that last. And Father, thank you so much that we do not face the daily battle alone. You've given us each other. You've given us your spirit to help us hold firmly to the eternal truth of Jesus. And to help us live each day with that eternal perspective. May the knowledge of eternity, may the knowledge of the things that will last us, our souls, the souls of our family, friends, and neighbors, may that knowledge give us hope and give us confidence to follow you and trust you wherever you might lead and whatever comes our way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.